Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.17, The 1741 New York Slave Conspiracy. On March the 18th, 1741, Fort George, located on the southern tip of Manhattan, caught fire and was heavily damaged. The fire at Fort George would launch a series of events that would, by the beginning of September of that same year, see 17 black men, as well as another four white colonists, hanged, with another 13 being burned alive. This would lead to a far-ranging conspiracy that would shake colonial New York to its very core. In 1741, New York was a city of roughly 10,000 people. Of that number, approximately 2,000 were slaves. As we mentioned in our last episode, the city was no stranger to slave rebellions, having severed through one in 1712. The 1712 rebellion is something that remained in the minds of the colonists. Many had actual memories of the events, while those who did not often had heard the stories from their parents. In response to the events of 1712, what emerged in New York was a series of strict slave codes that were designed to restrict the access that slaves had to one another and limit any perceived freedoms that they might have had within the colony. Slave codes inside of New York differed from what you would see in the South, largely because slavery in New York was vastly different than slavery in the South. There were no plantations in New York. It was not the wide-open environment that existed throughout the Southern colonies. Rather, New York then, as it is now, was an urban environment. People lived in cramped spaces, including the slaves. There were no separate slave quarters in New York, but instead the slaves lived in the attics and basements of their owners. For slave owners, this made for an often uncomfortable situation for them, as if the slave wanted to, say, slit their throat while they slept, they were already in the house. The effect of having slavery in such a densely packed urban environment was that a very particular type of paranoia emerged that, well, not exactly unique to New York, it did specifically tailor itself to that colony. Likewise, because of the cramped living conditions and the lack of plantations, the vast majority of the slaves were used as servants, as opposed to farming operations, which were more common throughout the South. This leads to most slave owners in New York owning relatively small numbers of slaves, especially one compared to those in the South. In response to these concerns, what emerged was a harsh set of slave laws. The primary purpose of slave codes was to restrict the movement of slaves and reduce the chance that they could come together and overthrow the colony. These codes, therefore, were said to restrict slaves in a handful of key ways. They were, for example, forbidden from carrying any kind of weapon, such as guns or clubs. This was a pretty common law everywhere. More unique to New York was the fact that only three slaves could congregate at any given time. This was in place to stop large slave gatherings from taking place and to restrict the opportunity for mob action. It is worth mentioning that New York had a long history of what was often seen as excessive slave codes. Going as far back as the 1680s, when James II was still the Duke of York, there had been complaints about the excessive nature of New York slave codes. What you have, therefore, in 1741 is a situation that was unique to the colonies. 
you have an urban environment where slaves and their owners are living right on top of each other. This close proximity meant that New York slaves had far more ability than their southern brethren to meet and congregate. And in the eyes of the white colonists, plot. Down in the south, where the plantation system meant that everybody was far more spread out, this was a much harder task. Of course, we know that these fears are not without merit, especially when you consider the 1712 rebellion, something that even some 30 years later still had the colony on edge. This perceived danger leads to an increasingly harsh set of slave codes, which ensured that New York of 1741 was a tinderbox that seemed primed to explode. Built in 1626 by the Dutch, Fort Amsterdam was located at what was then the tip of Manhattan, where the Hudson and East River come together. If you are looking at a map of the area today, the fort stood on the location now occupied by the Alexander Hamilton Customs House. With that being said, if you are noticing that the fort is a bit more inland than my descriptions would leave you to believe, be aware that landfill has significantly increased the size of Manhattan Island since 1741. In 1741, it would have actually bordered the coast. The fort had a long history of being renamed, depending on who the monarch was at any given moment, and in 1741, it was Fort George. Back in our episode on Leisler's Rebellion, the fort was known as Fort James. It is the same Fort James that Francis Nicholson would abandon to Leisler and his rebels before hightailing it out of New York. The fort had long been the administrative home of the colony and likewise served as the governor's house. At around 1 p.m. on March 18, 1741, the fort caught fire. Firefighting during the 18th century was not the well-coordinated thing that it is today, and was often more along the lines of being a bucket brigade. The fire was not a suspicious event. Fires were common and did not immediately make everybody think that some vast conspiracy was afoot. The only thought that something might be out of the ordinary was that during the fire, a slave named Cuffy was reportedly seen pouring out his buckets of water while laughing hysterically. As to the truth of this allegation, I could not find exactly when it was made. As we will see later today, it is at least possible that this story is mere revisionist history when looking back at that fire. Either way, despite the fort being devastated by the fire, few additional questions were asked and the matter was over. The bizarre actions of Cuffy aside, nothing would really become suspicious until a few days later when another two fires broke out in the city. What would follow that first fire was a series of fires all over the city that would come in the preceding weeks. If a single fire was not something that raised suspicion, certainly an outbreak of fires is something that caught everybody's attention. It was on April 4th, a day when there were two more fires that had started, that there was the first sign of arson. In the days following the 4th, more fires broke out, and again, there were signs of arson. The first suspects were the Spanish slaves being held in the colony. The Spanish slaves had always loudly objected to their servitude, arguing that they were subjects of Spain. Their protests over their servitude always made them popular targets whenever there was any kind of concern over slave uprisings in New York. Attention soon shifted, however, from the Spanish onto African slaves. When a few days later, Cuffy himself was seen fleeing from the scene of a fire at the house of Adolph Phillips, 
In a society that was so filled with fears that slaves would rise up and slaughter them all, it should come as little surprise that at the first hint of any such event taking place, everybody went into panic mode. New Yorkers had spent the last 30 years waiting for a slave uprising, and now they had one. Following the arrest of Cuffy, allegations were made against other slaves as well. Another slave, Quack, who was owned by the colonist John Walter, was reported to have been heard shouting his support of the fires. Quack argued that he had actually been talking about a recent victory in the War of Jenkins' Ear, and that the fire actually referred to the seizure of a naval ship. However, with paranoia high, accusations began to swirl out of control in the colony as a period of intense interrogations began. The New York Supreme Court opened its 1741 spring session on April 21st, with the big question to answer being solving the literal firestorm that had hit the colony. A justice of that court, Daniel Horsmanden, led the interrogations. By April 21st, there were several slaves in the basement of the city hall, where the court proceedings were being held. Besides Cuffy, you had slaves Prince and Caesar, who were largely seen as the leaders of the rebellion, along with two dozen additional African slaves as well as Spanish slaves, who had already been accused. You likewise had John and Sarah Hewson, as well as their 17-year-old daughter, who was also named Sarah. The Hewsons were a white family that had become implicated in the growing conspiracy. The finger quickly pointed at them as having been the organizers of the slaves and being the ones behind the rebellion. There was little in the way of fair and impartial jurors here. Many of the grand jurors who had been set to investigate this case had themselves had their property burnt and destroyed. On the bench, the judge who was overseeing all of this to begin with was Adolph Phillips, whose house had been burned and was the place where Cuffy was seen fleeing from. In so many ways, the events that would take place during the spring and summer of 1741 seem shockingly similar to what we had seen back in 1692 Salem. Except that this time, rather than a conspiracy of witches, there was a conspiracy that the city slaves were rising up. If you remember back to those episodes on Salem, it was people like Anne Putnam Jr. who fueled that paranoia and fear that drove the Salem witchcraft trials forward. We are about to see that same phenomenon happen again, just this time in New York. Playing the role of Anne Putnam Jr. in 1741 New York was Mary Burden. Mary Burden, just 16 years old, was the servant of the now jailed Sarah and John Hewson. Burden, like the Hewsons, was from Ireland and had come to New York as an indentured servant. At the same time, Burden was not without her own problems having been arrested just a few weeks prior in conjunction with a robbery. John Hewson himself was known to dabble in the black market and deal in stolen goods. Weeks before, and at this point still unrelated to the fires, there had been an allegation made against both John and Sarah Hewson, as well as Prince, Caesar, Peggy Carey, who was alleged to be a prostitute who had a baby with Caesar, and Mary Burden for a burglary. All of them had been arrested on this basis and were being held at the time that the fires were breaking out. Okay, so how do we move from a burglary to a vast slave conspiracy? The answer comes in the testimony of Mary Burden. While being questioned by the grand jury on the subject of the burglary, Burden mentioned a meeting at the Houston's Tavern 
where there was talk about burning the entire city to the ground and killing the white colonists as they came to extinguish the fires. Burden claimed that the plan was that after all the fire and killing was over, Caesar would become the governor and Hewson would become the king. It was the comment by Burden that linked the two otherwise unrelated events and is the action that truly set off the events of the coming months. Horsemanden and Phillips were so taken aback with the comments made by Burden that they called all the local members of the bar to an emergency meeting to plan for what would follow, a series of prosecutions. The trial and investigations were really one and the same. Horsemanden, despite being a judge, was also the chief investigator. This alone was not an abnormal thing back during the 18th century. The modern adversarial system would not emerge until the later half of the century. For Horsemanden, his job therefore became not only judging the cases, but also helping to investigate the crimes. Well, Burden, by the end of April, was openly giving Daniel Horsemanden the information that he wanted, she maintained that she was an outsider in the entire conflict, a mere witness rather than somebody who was actually taking part in a greater conspiracy. The first trial, a trial based on the testimony of Burden, started on May 1st, and was the trial of Caesar and Prince. Unsurprisingly, the two men were very quickly convicted. The bigger blow came when Arthur Price, an indentured servant with a totally unrelated charge, made statements implicating Peggy Carey. Within days of this, a trial was held on that burglary charge, for which both the Houstons and Carey were convicted. Though by this point, the attention had shifted away from the burglary and onto the grand conspiracy. As it turned out, Price was apparently skilled at getting confessions out of his fellow inmates. Eager to use this to his advantage, Horsemanden stuck Price in a cell with the alleged conspirators, as well as provided some alcohol to ensure that, you know, everything moved along smoothly. Within days of being placed in a cell with Cuffy, Arthur Price had the information he needed. Price informed Horsemanden that Cuffy told him that Quack, a slave owned by John Roosevelt, was the one responsible for the fire at Fort George. As a quick note, last time we had met Nicholas Roosevelt, the four-time great-grandfather to both Franklin and Theodore. John Roosevelt is Nicholas's son and is the three times great-grandfather to Theodore Roosevelt and is the founder of what would become the Oyster Bay Roosevelts. By this point, the people in the jail were figuring out that the best policy was to confess and provide useful information to the court, and especially to Daniel Horsmanden. By May 7th, Peggy Carey was ready to talk. However, she was not providing anything useful. With Caesar about to hang, Carey opened up and started accusing anybody she could just to save herself. Carrie furthered the story by telling the investigators of just how big of a plot it was at Hewson's and named as many people as she could, with more and more names now coming out. Monday, May 11th, marked the beginning of a new phase, specifically the executions. That day, both Caesar and Prince would hang for burglary. Well, Burden had provided the framework for the conspiracy case, there remained the arduous task of getting people to talk. Yes, Burden and Price were talking, but Horsemanden needed more in order to proceed. In order to get people talking, Horsemanden offered the one thing that would change the entire course of the investigation. He offered their first witness, 
a young slave named Sandy a full pardon in exchange for his cooperation. Not wanting to himself be executed, Sandy gave the information that the grand jury needed and he named an additional 15 slaves as being involved in the now quickly growing conspiracy. This would start a distinct pattern in the trials. Witnesses would be offered pardons in exchange for confessions. The option for a pardon was not universal, as Horseman did and company wanted to hold the alleged ringleaders responsible. However, this would start a whole new firestorm of allegations being made by people trying to save their own lives. It would not be until 1756 that the rules of evidence would change to state that confessions must be made voluntarily and without compulsion. Once again, it is difficult not to see the shades of Salem in 1741 New York. Confessions were being made, not because they were true, but out of coercion. As in Salem, if making a confession and naming names is the only method whereby a person can save their own life, it is something they are going to do, regardless of the truth behind the situation. One of the biggest problems that arose during these trials was the matter of Negro evidence. Slaves could not offer testimony in court. The logic behind this was that as they were not Christians, they could not consent to an oath. This would cause several problems as many of the confessors were other slaves attempting to get pardons. Slaves could testify against each other, but if the decision to prosecute an alleged organizer like John Hewson came up, none of the slaves would be allowed to offer testimony. This means that the testimony of people like Mary Burden was even more important. As she was white, she could provide the much-needed testimony. However, as we will see in a moment, there was an instance where evidence from a slave could be used against a white person. The next two convictions produced by the courts were that of Cuffy and Quack. Both men had been at the center of everything and were, unsurprisingly, sentenced to death. However, for both men, their deaths would be far more terrifying of an ordeal than hanging. They were to be publicly burned at the stake. On May 30th, the two men were escorted to a location known as the Negro's Burial Ground. They were chained to stakes over heaps of wood. The men, to this point, had steadfastly held to their claims of innocence. Now, however, undoubtedly overcome with fear of being burned to death, both men threw out confessions in an attempt to save their own lives. Both men pointed the finger directly at John Hewson as being behind the entire conspiracy. Unfortunately for the two men, a large crowd had formed and there was little interest in civil unrest for sparing two slaves. They were accordingly both burned. On June 4th, the trial of the Hewsons, as well as Peggy Carey, took place. If you'll recall from just a moment ago, I had mentioned that so-called Negro evidence was inadmissible against a white person in New York. There was, however, a situation which the testimony of a slave could be used against a white person. The evidence was admissible if it was a deathbed confession. The logic was that people who are facing imminent death are more likely to be truthful. They are going to die and therefore have no logical reason to lie anymore. This doctrine was extended to Cuffy and Quack, whose allegations against John Hewson came while being chained to the stake. Their testimony, while still alive, would have been inadmissible. However, when a person is dead, there is no need to worry about an oath. 
the testimony made by the two men could come in against Houston. In this way, it is indeed critical that both Cuffy and Quack needed to die that day in order for their testimony against Houston to be admissible. Had the two men been spared, the information they provided may not have come into court, and as slaves could not give testimony against whites, it would have meant that their confessions would have been rendered moot. With the statements of Cuffy and Quack being introduced into evidence, both John and Sarah Hewson, as well as Peggy Carey, were convicted and sentenced to die by hanging. Following the conviction, Phillips did not miss out on an opportunity to let the Hewsons know just how terrible the events at their tavern really were. He let them know just how disgusted he really was at the fact that within his tavern, slaves were reportedly being treated as equals. What would follow through the rest of June was more of the same pattern as what we've already seen. Slaves in custody would give the panel what they wanted in the way of confessions. Out of those, suspected ringleaders would be identified and tried and often executed, while pressure was put on the rest to confess and name more names. For slaves who gave the most helpful information, as determined by Horsemanden, pardons were liberally awarded. By the end of June 1741, what had formed was the idea that a grand conspiracy was taking place in New York, that there were plans for the city slaves to rise up, burn the city to the ground, and murder all of the white people within the colony. The problem is that in this system, the belief was always held that white collaborators were not just possible, but in fact, they were essential. Colonists struggled to believe that such a detailed plot was carried out by the slaves alone, as the idea of them authoring such a rebellion seemed ludicrous. There was always going to have to be a white man involved to have been the ringleader of the conspiracy. Now, obviously from what we have been talking about today, it is pretty clear that the sacrificial white man here was John Hewson. Hewson was a lot of things. He was seen throughout the colony as being a petty criminal and a smuggler. As you have likely figured out, he was not exactly a popular nor a well-liked guy. The problem is that Horseman didn't needed him to be the ringleader in what he was trying to prove to be some kind of conspiracy. And frankly, Houston just was not that guy. First, there were practical questions surrounding his ability to run a vast criminal conspiracy. Houston was not some wealthy guy, and in fact, his tavern was struggling. With the reports from Mary Burden, as well as other slaves, telling tales of huge numbers of slaves present at his tavern, where he was serving them all, there is the practical question of just how could he afford such an extravagance? Hewson was struggling to feed his own family. Therefore, it seems very much out of place that he could spare money to feed what was quickly becoming hundreds of slaves. Beyond that, Hewson was nothing more than a petty smuggler not some revolutionary leader. By the end of June, there were over 100 people locked in the basement of the jail at City Hall connected with the fires. With each arrest came more names as the entire situation was threatening to balloon even more out of control than it already was. To add to that, Horsemanden had the very real problem that Houston simply would not cut it as the ringleader. He needed something bigger and better. With Horsemanden looking for a new conspiratorial leader, the trials were also changing. More and more slaves were being tried together, with the only actual evidence needed for conviction 
being the testimony from somebody, anybody, that they had been present at that meeting at Houston's tavern. To solve the problem of how Houston managed to feed everybody, Horsemanden was able to pivot and add a kind of second meeting spot. Maybe this location did not have the huge meeting seen at Houston's tavern. However, slaves moving in and out of it could have spread the news of the coming rebellion. The location that suddenly fell suspect was a property belonging to Gerardus Comfort. What made Comfort's property such an alluring location is that it included one of the best water pumps in all of New York. Well, that does not sound like much. One of the biggest threats facing the growing city was a lack of drinkable water. Among the few places on the entire island of Manhattan to get a good drinkable water supply was a place belonging to Gerardus Comfort. Comfort himself was seldom at his house, and it became a popular spot for the colonists to send their slaves to retrieve clean water. Because of the constant need for water, and that the job of fetching it fell to the slaves, Comfort's place became a popular gathering spot for slaves. As this was also the best-known spot in the city to get clean drinking water, it managed to link virtually the entire slave population of New York directly to it. Finally, and very importantly, it was located right next door to the tavern owned by Hewson. It is likewise an important distinction to make that the use of comforts alone did not totally solve the problems relating to Hewson. The meetings at comforts were for slaves only. There were no whites there. This is in contrast to that meeting at Hewson's, where you had at least four whites in the room during that alleged meeting. Rather, Comforts allowed Horsemanden to supplement the allegations already being made. Horsemanden could use Comforts as something of a secondary location to bring even more people into the conspiracy. Well, it did mean granting the New York slave population more agency over their own actions, the puzzle pieces fit nicely. Still, however, by the end of June, there was a pressure to bring this entire affair to an end. The jail had well over 100 people inside of it, which itself made for something of a public health risk. Disease spread quickly, and holding so many people together in a confined space was just asking for an outbreak. For Horsemanden, bringing in the House of Gerardus Comfort helped. However, it failed to explain the greater conspiracy a question that everybody was still asking about. If Houston did not fit the role of the ringleader of some great slave conspiracy, Horsemanden still needed to find somebody who could fit into that part. Furthermore, the court's chief justice, James Delancey, had just returned from settling a dispute over a land claim related to the old Plymouth colony. The spring session had already gone way over its schedule, and Delancey was eager to bring the entire ordeal to a swift end. Horsemanden got the stroke of luck that he needed towards the end of June. What showed up was a letter from General James Oglethorpe. We have obviously met Oglethorpe before, and not that long ago, as he was the leader of the Georgia Trustees. In 1741, Oglethorpe was busy fighting the Spanish in the War of Jenkins' Ear. Now, I'm not going to go into the causes of that war or why it mattered today. However, if you are some super huge fan of the War of Jenkins' Ear, don't fret, we are going to circle back to it and cover it down the road a bit. For today, just know that in 1741, there was a war going on between the British and the Spanish, and that James Oglethorpe was involved. 
Oglethorpe's involvement in all of this came in the form of a dispatch, where he warned of Spanish plots to move through the colonies, burning magazines in towns. The warning further stipulated that the Spaniards planning to carry out these attacks may be disguised as doctors and dancing masters. Enter John Yuri. Yuri was a Spaniard who was quickly tied into the events. In New York, where he was teaching Greek and Latin, suspicion fell on Yuri when a slave named Tom mentioned that there was a man who had told Cuffy that they would be forgiven for their sins that they were about to commit. Yuri himself was rumored around town to be an undercover priest, and on June 24th, Yuri was arrested. Once again, it was Mary Burden who was called upon to confirm that Yuri was indeed part of the plot. Now, this put Burden in a very strange situation, as she now had to be careful not to accidentally impeach her previous testimony. She had already testified that the Hewsons and Piggy Carey were the only white people that she had seen gathering at the tavern. She stated that while she had not directly seen Yuri, or actually interacted with him in any way, she had heard of him. The testimony was admittedly weak. However, it was the best they had. During an interrogation on July 5th of William Kane, a soldier who had been implicated, Horsemanden and Delancey got the information they needed. Kane, a white colonist, had stated that he too had been at that meeting at Houston's Tavern. Through Kane's testimony that he had been present at Houston's Tavern, and through his testimony that Yuri was involved, everything now linked nicely together. As has been the case so many times before, Kane himself was looking at death if he did not give his interrogators what they wanted. Yuri's involvement changed what had begun as a series of fires in New York and had morphed into a slave conspiracy into a fully-fledged-out Spanish-Catholic plot against the colonies. However, even though the entire ordeal seemed to be growing bigger by the day, by the time July rolled around, the entire conspiracy seemed to be buckling under its own weight. Slaves had, in the early weeks of July, right around the same time that Kane was confirming the participation of John Yuri began retracting their confessions. One slave, Othello, who belonged to James Delancey himself, was convicted to burn without even being granted a trial. Othello, not wanting to be burned alive, quickly confessed. In fact, he confessed repeatedly, hoping that something, anything, would stick and at a minimum he would be spared from being burnt alive. Unfortunately for Othello, his position as Delancey's slave did him no favors, as the judges were careful to avoid anything that could appear to be impropriety. By this point, with slaves quickly recanting their previous confessions, while others such as Othello were willing to confess to anything at all in order to save themselves, the evidence being provided by the slaves began to fall into question. Othello had actually informed Delancey, far too late to save himself that he had lied in his confessions under pressure. Realizing that the wheels were about to come off, Delancey was quick to bring the entire affair to an end. The final slave trial would come on July 15th, and as a result, the following Saturday, five more were hanged, and another slave was burnt at the stake. The last slave to hang would be Othello himself. On July 28th, proceedings against John Urey began. The principal witness against him would be Sarah Hewson, 
the daughter of the now deceased Hewsons. With both her parents dead and herself already sentenced to death, she testified to the entire affair having been a Catholic conspiracy. Leading the conspiracy was, of course, none other than John Urey. With the jurors hearing the testimony from Hewson and the stark warning from Oglethorpe, it was all too clear. It was Yuri, an undercover Catholic priest who had been behind everything all along. It took just 15 minutes for the jury to convict Yuri. Yuri was a critical piece to the puzzle and was the person who made everything fit together nicely. Whereas there had been so much trouble trying to fit Hewson into that role of some grand conspirator, Yuri fit the bill. Allegations that he was converting the slaves to do his bidding had made him, in the eyes of New Yorkers, into something of a supervillain. Suddenly, Hewson did not need to be the leader of a coming rebellion, a job that people universally agreed did not fit him. But he could in fact be just the petty criminal under the command of the true ringleader, John Yuri. On August 29th, 1741, John Yuri was hanged. With his death, the entire ordeal was finally over. What was it that happened in New York in 1741? Since the previous March, 17 black men had been hanged, with another 13 being burnt at the stake. There were four dead white colonists as well. This is ignoring the slaves who were spared death, but were sold to new locations outside of the colony. Had there in fact been some grand conspiracy set to burn down, at the very least New York, and possibly more? Was John Hewson trying to make himself into a king? Was this all a Spanish plot, led by John Yuri? Was it a slave uprising? The answers to these questions are that we don't really know. The primary sources that still exist from the events of 1741 come in the form of Daniel Horsmanden's records of it. Unsurprisingly, Horsmanden had a lot on the line with these trials, so there is at least some question about how much we can trust his own records. Certainly, it would appear that the events were embellished, probably extensively. Likewise, because of the methods by which the investigations took place, that often the only way to save yourself from death was to offer up new names to Horseman and company, it meant that they executed many innocent people, often in pretty horrific ways. If we are going to pretend for just a moment that there truly was some kind of conspiracy by the New York slaves, it is worth noting that they never actually carried out the plans that they were plotting. Remember that the alleged plot here was that the slaves were going to light fires all around the city, and then as the white colonists came out to fight said fires, the slaves were going to kill them all. Well, there were fires, there is no mention that any white person was ever harmed other than by the fire itself, nor were any killed while fighting those fires. If there was any plot at all, there also remains questions of just how deep it went. How many people were actually involved, and what were the actual end goals? Was it an expression of anger against the unquestionably unfair situation in the lives of the slaves? Or was it some bigger event, such as, say, a Spanish conspiracy? Is it out of the question that the slaves could have plotted to burn property and kill their owners? Absolutely not. Our entire last episode had been about slave rebellions. 
they were a real thing, and there were plenty of slaves out there who would have been sympathetic to such a plan. Other suggestions say that the events of 1741 may have come from a joke that was carried too far. If there had been a slave gathering at either Houston's or Comfort's place, there may have been idle chatter about burning the entire place down and killing the whites. Nothing about this would have been surprising. However, when the fires started and people began getting hanged and burned at the stake for it, what may have begun as the venting of some pent-up anger and frustration suddenly became dangerously real. Beyond that, the entire foundation of the story seemed weak to begin with. Bias ran heavily throughout the trials. Delancey's own slave Othello was indeed the last slave killed. Phillips had his property burned. These men had a stake in the outcome of the trial, and their impartiality was impossible. The evidence-gathering process in the cases was also extremely concerning. That the judges were also the investigators meant that they had an inherent bias going into those hearings. Now, to be fair, this was not unique to New York in 1741, but was rather standard operating procedure throughout the colonies. The more modern adversarial system would not come into its own until later in the century. However, the process of eliciting confessions from people who were looking at the very real possibility of being burnt at the stake was an absolute recipe for disaster. It is likewise very difficult not to see shades of 1692 Salem all over this situation. As in Salem, you had a situation where a mass hysteria took over and fed the trials. There was the same issue of confessions made under extreme duress then as there was now. Cuffy and Quack confessed, literally chained to a stick about to be burnt to death. This was not something lost on the colonists of the time either. There were those in New England who had recognized the similarities between the two sets of trials. It is worth mentioning that some 50 years earlier, it was New York that had loudly condemned the actions of Salem. You likewise fail to see the kind of introspection that would eventually emerge out of Salem. In Salem, you at least had a handful of participants who would later come around and admit that they had made a mistake. This includes both Anne Putnam Jr. and Samuel Sewell. Phillips would, for example, die in the 1750s, with Delancey dying in 1760. Horsemanden would ultimately prove to outlive most of them, surviving until 1778. In time, he would end up becoming the Chief Justice of the New York Superior Court. When the American Revolution did come, Horsemanden would remain a staunch loyalist, who absolutely despised George Washington. At no point did Horsemanden ever mention that he felt any regret for the events of 1741. I would argue to all of you that, to a degree, it does not really matter for the episode today whether or not there was actually a conspiracy in 1741 New York. Well, it is an interesting question. There is simply nothing out there that makes clear one way or another what actually took place. What we do, however, learn from 1741 is a great deal more about what it meant to be an urban slave during the colonial era. Slavery is something that is often thought of as being strictly a Southern phenomenon. Well, it was certainly more prevalent down in the Southern colonies. It was not something that was yet contained down there alone. It absolutely existed in the North as well. In an urban environment like New York, slavery came with challenges that were unique to that colony. 
massive slave gatherings in New York were far more workable than, say, on a large plantation down in South Carolina or Virginia. Everybody, both slave and free, lived in tight quarters. This leads to fear of slave rebellions in New York because the conditions allowed for such a rebellion to be possible in the first place. The information on the trials by Horsemanden might be suspect, but from his journal, it is possible to get a sense of how slaves moved around within the city. That a meeting like the one that is alleged to have occurred at the Houston's was even possible in the first place is noteworthy on its own. New York officials obviously feared this exact sort of situation, which is why the colony had those strict slave codes to, hopefully in their minds, prevent this meeting from ever being able to take place to begin with. For the slaves, even when it came to burying the dead, we see that there are limits on how many were allowed to come to the grave and mourn. Colonists and colonial officials alike had gone to great lengths to prevent this kind of gathering from ever being possible. Therefore, when an accusation was made of a mass slave gathering at John Houston's tavern, it tapped into that palpable fear of danger that already existed inside the colony a fear that existed because they had such a large enslaved population. New York, likewise, was not a stranger to actual slave violence, having had their own rebellion just 30 years before in 1712. In fact, when you look at 1712 and 1741 together, it quickly becomes apparent that there are a lot of common themes between the two events. From the idea of a widespread conspiracy down to the fact that many of the same individuals and families were involved in both. In 1712, it had been Nicholas Roosevelt's slave Tom, who had been in the middle of it all. In 1741, it was John Roosevelt's slave Quack, who was identified as one of the ringleaders of the conspiracy and was burned at the stake for it. Though there is no evidence of it, there has at least been suggestions that it is not impossible that Tom was the father of Quack. The confessions made by Mary Burden fed into that fear and mirrored many of the aspects of what had happened in 1712. People had spent 30 years on edge in fear of another slave rebellion. And in 1741, when they finally got a sniff of such an event, the entire situation would quickly spiral out of control. As a final note on today's episode, I wanted to mention the location of where all this was happening for any of the listeners living in and around the New York area. During an excavation back in 1991, the old Negro burial ground, but one that we referenced earlier today in New York, was discovered. Closed for good in 1790, the site contains the remains of more than 20,000 people, the vast majority of which were enslaved. The site had been essentially forgotten until that point. Among the remains, there are nearly all of the victims of 1741 though it is possible that some may have been dumped into the river, specifically those who were put on display following their executions. There is a memorial off Reed Street, near Broadway. The location is just a block away from the New York City Hall. As a final, final note, if this episode was interesting to you, I will have you know that I leaned heavily on the book, New York Burning. Liberty, Slavery, and Conspiracy in 18th Century Manhattan by Joe Lepore. So if you really do want to dig deeper into the details here, I strongly suggest checking it out. Next time, we are going to turn our attention towards religion during the 18th century. Specifically, we are going to look at the Great Awakening 
see how it comes to be, and just how it would dominate religion through the middle part of the century. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we discuss the Great Awakening. <laughs>